Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, this morning, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, you'll find that on page 857 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you just to take that Bible there in front of you, and that'd be our gift to you. I also forgot to tell you, give you some instruction uh, a little while ago about the cantata tonight when you come to the cantata. From what I understand, Don, this is a celebration. That, is that correct? That we are celebrating tonight? Yes. And so Don says, do this. And uh, feel free to celebrate the birth of Christ. Feel free to applaud and shout and rejoice that Christ has come for us. I don't think this is a somber event. I think this is a joyous event. And so um, let's come tonight with great joy in our heart for what Christ has done. And I trust he'll be pleased with that. And so Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So now, Father, we come to hear from you. We come to set our hearts and our minds upon your word, to sit under it, our authority, your revelation to us. We ask that you would help us, Father, that you would come and encourage us and challenge us and uh, build up our faith within us through your spirit and the proclaimed word. Father, I trust there are many here this morning that have many different needs in their lives. And yet we know that you are the God of all comfort, that your grace is all sufficient, all glorious and all powerful. And so we come here because we need to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to us and that we may be drawn more towards you, that we may be closer to Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were alive 200 years ago in 1809... The world's focus would be centered on one man, Napoleon, the emperor of France, uh, mighty and powerful as he set about to conquer the world. One author said if Brian Williams had been living in 1809, his evening news broadcast would have concentrated on Austria, not America. Nothing else was half as significant on the international scene. The last place you would think to look, then, would be in the backwoods of Kentucky. And yet, in 1809, a poor, illiterate, wandering laborer named Thomas Lincoln and his wife had a baby boy. They named him Abraham. And he would change the world. If you were alive 2,000 years ago, Your focus will be on the empire of Rome and its new leader, Gaius Octavian. 
Octavian, the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar and his favorite, he would be appointed heir of the Roman Empire. And a year after he was appointed heir, at the age of 20, Julius Caesar would be assassinated by his close friend Brutus. Octavian would rule jointly with a friend of his, Mark Antony, who would actually marry Octavian's sister. And yet, soon afterwards, became bewitched with the allures of the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. Divorcing Octavian's sister and beginning more and more to put the the needs and the interests of Egypt above Rome, leading to the naval battle of Actium, in which Rome destroyed the Egyptian fleet, and Mark Antony and Cleopatra subsequently committed suicide. And there Octavian took the sole reins of the Roman Empire, and he, in fact, would become its true first emperor. He would assume the title Caesar, which means king. Or, or ruler. But that wasn't enough. Soon after that, he was appointed an additional title, the title Augustus, which means holy one or majestic one. And thus we know him not as Gaius Octavian, but Caesar Augustus. In fact, it's interesting to note that the term Augustus up to this point was solely reserved to refer to the gods in the Greek pantheon. And yet here now a man was given that title. He would be the first Caesar to receive worship as a son of God. In fact, known as the Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. He was a brilliant ruler. It was said of uh, Caesar Augustus that he, when he took over the reins of Rome, it was made of brick. When he left, it was made of marble. Incredible building programs. He centralized the government, regulated commerce and trade. The transportation system extended the road, the, the, through the roads, extended the Roman Empire throughout the known world. He strengthened the military, crushing all opposition, bringing into the period that's been known by historians as the Peace of Rome or the Pax Romana. In fact, Caesar Augustus was so revered that you can still go to the Greek city of Halicarnassus and you will read the inscription. Simply read, Caesar Augustus, the savior of the world. If you were alive 2,000 years ago, your focus would be on Rome and its savior, a son of God. The last place you would consider to look would be Bethlehem of Judea, where in a stable of all places a poor Jewish peasant laborer and his wife have a baby. It's a boy, and they name him Jesus. It seems to me that Luke is perhaps drawing a contrast, as we see in verse 1. In these days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You see, both Caesar Augustus and Jesus would claim to be a son of God or the son of God. They both claim to be the savior of the world. And yet Caesar Augustus kind of fit the bill, didn't he? He looked the part. He he looked like what a son of God ought to look. And yet it is this Jesus who would change the world. This Jesus who would change you and change me and countless lives even today. And so I would like with you to consider this Jesus, our Lord to consider his birth this morning and wonder at the humility of his birth, to ask the question that sometimes we sing, why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? That we not only consider the humility of his birth, but the power of his birth, the the sovereignty of God behind his birth to bring it about. And yet before we consider the humility of the birth and the sovereignty of his birth, let's consider that it actually occurred. Let's consider the fact that it is a historical birth. 
You know, first of all, that Luke tells us in this passage that the birth of Jesus was a historical birth. For we read in verse 1, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so here we have Caesar Augustus who's issued this decree and the, that the entire world should be registered. Now they would have a registration or a census for one of two reasons. One was for power. This would be a way for the, the emperor to determine how many adult men he has, how many potential soldiers he has. And so um, they would register everyone for that reason. The Jews happen to be exempt, by the way, from Roman military service. And so it's most likely, at least in the, the census here in Judea, has nothing to do with uh, the power or his military. The other reason they would have a census was simply for money, to find out how many citizens you have, make sure you're paying your tax. So you go and be registered and you would give them your name and, and your job and your property and your family. It would be like showing up in the IRS office. And I'm sure they all enjoyed that. They had a lot of fun going to the Roman IRS office. In fact, you know that the Romans have occupied Israel, which would have been a great disdain for them. In fact, some speculate there may be a third reason for this census, to secure an oath of allegiance to the Roman Empire. And so you know, of course, the Jews would despise this and, and hate this, and yet they were forced to do so, even at great cost to them. For verse 3 tells us, and, went, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so they had to return to their ancestral home. We, we know when the Jews entered into the promised land, when God led them there through um, Joshua and after the uh, exodus and the wandering, that the, the land was divided up by tribe and clan and so forth. And they had an ancestral home. And it's there that they would have to go and be registered whether they were living there uh, or not. And so Luke is here, he's uh, laboring this point. He's given us the social customs, the politics of the day. We got Caesar Augustus and decrees and ancestral towns. In fact, you even know verse 2, it's somewhat a cumbersome verse. It says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he even tells us the local governing official who would enforce Romans' uh, decrees and laws and rules. And so we're perhaps wondering, well, okay, uh, Luke, why all this detail? I mean, why are we getting all this information? How is this helpful? Well, you see what Luke is doing is he's explaining to us that what he's about to tell us, namely what's going to happen in verse 7, the birth of Christ, actually happened. It's not a myth. It's not a product of his imagination. It's not something he or others came up. It's, it's not teaching. He's giving us these uh, concrete historical markers. In fact, turn over to Luke chapter 3. You want to see how much Dr. Luke does this. You notice he says here, even even uh, more uh, driving home the historical realities of the things he purports for us. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, In the 15th year uh, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, right? I'm not sure you're going to find your life verse there, but what Luke is telling us here is that these things are... Are taking place, right? He wants to, hey, I want you to understand what I'm about to tell you happened during the census when Caesar Augustus was reigning and, and Quirinius was overseeing uh, Syria at this time. He's a well-educated, articulate, intelligent man showing us the historicity of the birth of Jesus. I think it's important to establish this morning because we live in a day in which people think the birth of Jesus is a lovely legend. It's wonderful, isn't it? And 
gives us time to pause and think about peace on earth and have a couple days of hope and, and happiness. Right? We, we think it's this lovely legend filled with symbolic language, but that's not what Luke is giving us here. He doesn't start this story by saying, once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. Right? When you, when, you, when you hear that, you know, okay, well, what I'm about to hear is an inspirational story, but we certainly know that it, it's not true. But Luke starts by saying, hey, remember when Caesar Augustus was emperor and they had that census that took place at that when Quirinius was overseeing Syria? This is how he wants us to know this. He wants us to know it as historical truth. Now, people um, try many different ways to learn about Jesus. In fact, it's somewhat of a challenge. How do you learn about someone who's alive 2,000 years ago? And, and many people are very interested to do the, that type of thing this time of year. And, and some people turn on the television and they'll watch a documentary, perhaps. There's plenty of those being aired these days. And it seems like this type of year just gives a great opportunity for people crawling out of their holes to deny everything we know about Jesus with the title expert behind their name. Or perhaps you, not a documentary, maybe you'll watch a film about Jesus. There's many of those. In fact, one such film uh, shows that Jesus as a boy, trying when his, his adoptive father Joseph had died, trying to raise Joseph back to life, but not being able to do so and becoming all frustrated and angry that he can't actually do and exercise the power that he thinks he ought to have. Of course, there's absolutely no evidence that anything of the sort took place, but people who watch these things don't know these truths. Or maybe you turn off the television and, and you, you get one of the popular books out there and tell you that Jesus was a mystic or mar- married Mary Magdalene and did, was not crucified and certainly was not raised from the dead and, and lived a good long life in France somewhere and had many children, as one book tells us. Or maybe if you're really serious, you get one of those real thick books, right, written by a, a college professor, you know, someone who knows these things. Maybe someone like Bart Ehrman, the chairman of the Department of Religion at University of North Carolina, who has said, quote, we know nothing about Jesus Christ. Or maybe Albert Schweitzer, the Nobel laureate, who said Christ was a deluded fanatic who futilely threw away his life on blind devotion to a mad dream. There is nothing more negative than the study of the life of Christ. Or maybe you consider the playwright George Bernard Shaw, who said Christ was a man who was sane until Peter held him as the Christ, who then became a monomaniac. His delusion is a very common delusion among the insane, quite consistent with the cunning which Jesus displayed after his delusion had taken complete hold of him. There's a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas about Jesus, a lot of places we can go to learn about Jesus. In fact, there's one place I would suggest that often gets overlooked. It's called the Bible, right? And Luke here, I think, perhaps has better access to the primary witnesses, as we saw in our study of Luke, that he went and spoke with, that he comes and he has better uh, access to what actually took place as he's presenting for us this, this historical reality. In fact, you notice how much he's laboring here. And even in verse 2, when he says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, you know, many throughout the ages have noted verse 2 of Luke chapter 2 and say, well, see here, Luke's a bad historian because we know when Quirinius was governor of Syria, he was governor from 6 AD to 9 AD. 
And we know that's too late for the birth of Christ because Herod the Great died in 4 BC and it was Herod who ordered the slaughter of the infants. So Jesus therefore had to be born before the death of Herod, before 4 BC. And so he could not have been born during the time which Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's 10 years too late. Luke's a bad historian, people have said, over the centuries until in 1764 a stone fragment was found buried outside Rome which was written in honor to the man who served as governor of Syria twice during the reign of Caesar Augustus. So perhaps Quinerius had served a previous time as governor. But even if that stone fragment was never found, you note verse 2, if we read it carefully, it says this was the first registration when, but that word when can, and maybe you even have a footnote in your Bible, can equally be translated before Quirinius was governor of Syria. We actually know historically, Luke will tell us in the book of Acts, there's this famous census that took place during uh, 6 AD when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so what Luke may be saying is the census I'm talking about isn't that famous one when when uh, Quirinius was governor, but it happened actually before Quirinius. So in fact, he even mentions in verse 2, this was the first registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. However you resolve this problem, what we see is that Luke is presenting historical realities. And of course there are many skeptics who say, yes, we know he's presenting this as history. We know he's presenting this as fact, but he's just concocting it. He's making it up with the religious leaders. It's just a, 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 a fiction that the political winners have created. They will tell you we know nothing about the historical Jesus. Right? We, 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 don't, we certainly know, at least, he, he didn't do miracles or rise from the dead or claim to be divine. This is all written by church leaders trying to consolidate their power. they suppressing the evidence that Jesus was just simply a moral teacher. Perhaps you've heard that accusation as well. well I certainly appreciate the ministry of Tim Keller, who has explained the Gospels are too detailed to be legend. What he means by that is that it was not until the 18th century that this new literature style called the novel or the short story was developed. And we've read novels, and they present themselves as if these things actually happen. Realistic fiction, they're very detailed. But if you go back and read ancient fiction, you'll never find anything like a modern novel. Go read Beowulf or Iliad and see if it's presented to you as something you're supposed to believe. They don't start, um, Beowulf doesn't start, by the way, like verse 1 does. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In fact, I appreciate C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor who was an expert in ancient literature. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they look like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel test, there are only two possible views. Either this is actual reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessor or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of the modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. I like the condescending part at the end. Right? I mean, he's a professor, of course. So, um, But you see, it, it, there was nothing like this. And what Luke is giving us is he's giving us not ancient fiction, but history. Now you may wonder, okay, Stephen, why, why are you hitting this point so hard? Well, I mean, why does it even matter? And what difference does it make? Well, why can't it just be a legend? Right? And why can't it just make us feel good every 
time around this year. I mean, we got the Virgin Mary and we have the Christ child and a manger and angels and shepherds and smiling cows and indirect lighting. And it's all so nice. Well, does it really matter if it's true? Does it really make a difference? I would suggest to you it makes all the difference in the world. See, if this is just a heartwarming legend, then you get to choose whether you believe it or not. It's up to you. It's a matter of a personal opinion. It's not binding upon you. Take what you want from it. Leave the rest behind. But if it actually happened, you see, Christmas confronts us with objective historical reality that you simply cannot dismiss as personal opinion or personal preference. It was Larry King, by the way, not a a terrible friend of Christianity, who said, it it was asked, if you could interview anyone in history, who who would that be? And Larry King said, I would interview interview Jesus Christ. And so their follow-up question said, if you could ask him one question, what would that be? In which he responded, I would ask him if he was indeed... Virgin born. And then he would go on, went on and say, the answer to that question would define history for me. Now, Larry King does not often get it right, but he nailed it here. Defines history. History confronts us. If this actually happens, it means God actually exists and he actually broke into this world and our faith is not based upon some internal experience or chills down our back. It's based upon truth. What happens? We don't believe in Jesus because he makes us feel good or fixes our problems or we like Christmas music. We believe in Jesus because he actually came. He actually broke into this world. It means that, that God really sent a Savior because people really need saving. He came. People need to be saved by Him. I wonder if you've been saved by Christ. He didn't come to show us a way. He didn't even come to make a way. He come to, came to complete the way. He came to save us. He came to die upon a cross, paying the penalty for my sin and for the sin of all who would trust in him. And three days later rose from the dead and declared, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you bow your knee to me as Lord and King, I will forgive you of all your sin and allow you to enter into a relationship with God who will become your father, a relationship that will continue on for eternity. This is the truth that, that we need. It's the truth that your neighbors need this time of year. It's the truth that, that those living in Tijuana need, or Kurdistan, or Liberia, or Eagle Butte, or Charlotte, North Carolina. It's the truth that we need to proclaim. It's the truth that we need to give so that others may proclaim it as well. It's a historical birth. But you see, secondly, it is a sovereign birth. It just didn't, Luke is just not interested in that it happened. He wants to tell us what, what happened. He explained to us what was going on even behind the scenes. And we note that he explains that there's great power behind this birth, great sovereignty, as we see in verse 4. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David. In this day, to make taxation easier, people would return to their ancestral homes. One such person was a village carpenter who lived in poverty, we'll see in our study of Luke, who would have to travel from Bethlehem to Nazareth. Now, we know in the Bible much has happened in Bethlehem. It was in Bethlehem that Rachel died in childbirth and that she was buried. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth worked the fields to provide for her and her mother-in-law, where she eventually would go on and meet Boaz. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth and Boaz would have a son named Obed, and Obed would have a son named Jesse, and Jesse would have a son named David. And it's in Bethlehem that David would shepherd his sheep, 
It was in Bethlehem that he would be anointed as king. In fact, you notice that, that Luke is, is driving home the connection between David. Do you see that there in verse 4? It's, calls Bethlehem the city of David and refers to Joseph as being from the house and lineage of David. And in fact, this is not the first time Luke has mentioned this. Look back in the conversation that we studied uh, between Gabriel and Mary. Luke, when just introducing the story to us in verse 27, says that she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And then he tells us of the house of David. And then even the angel, when he begins to describe the child and what she is to give birth, says in verse 32, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And even Zechariah's song, which we considered last week, he gets in on the act in verse 69, I believe it is, says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And so you see what Luke is going on over and over and over again in our study. Luke, this is the great promise to David. This is the son of David that is coming. For God would say to David, to the prophet Nathan, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's a promise that God made a thousand years before and God in his great power is bringing it about as Joseph from the house of David travels to the city of David. But he does not go alone for you know in verse 5, the Bible tells us to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The King James says she was great with child. Right? She was very pregnant, extra pregnant. Um, and she, she was ready to have that baby. And yet she came with him. It's interesting because she wasn't required to come with him. And only men would have to be registered in this day. And yet Joseph chose to bring his betrothed, his, his wife, Mary, even in her condition. Perhaps not wanting to leave her behind to face the ridicule and the shame in which she might have encountered there. As, um, as many people continued to refer to Jesus as an illegitimate child throughout his ministry. Or maybe that he, he didn't want to miss the birth. He didn't want her to have to go through that alone. So he took her. And can you imagine what a miserable journey that would have been? From Bethlehem to Nazareth would be somewhere between 80 and 100 miles. And she's going to have a baby any time now. Now, ladies, I don't know if you remember what it was like when you were not eight and a half months pregnant, nine months pregnant. But I'm not sure you were up for an 80-mile stroll. In fact, when my wife's nine months pregnant, I could barely get her in the car to drive her to the hospital. Right? And, and it's pain. It's hard. It's difficult. And here's poor Mary, and she has to, to walk these 80 miles or perhaps ride an animal. Maybe, maybe under the threat of giving birth on the roadside. Could you imagine something as difficult and challenging as that? In fact, one commentator said Mary was full term, which forced a slow rolling gait as she walked those 80 miles. Perhaps if she was fortunate, she had borrowed an animal to carry her. Whatever this, their situation, she traveled in dust bearing the distressing knowledge that she might have her first baby far from home, from her mother, and from near, nearly everyone who cared about her. It was incredibly challenging. The question may be raised, then, well, why? I mean, why did God make them move? Why did God move this woman at this time 80 to 100 miles by foot or on the back of an animal? Well, you see, 700 years before Caesar Augustus gave his decree, God had given his through the prophet Micah, who said in chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
Ephrathah is the, the original name given to the city of Bethlehem, according to Genesis 35. And so Micah uses both names. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're too small, you're too insignificant to even be named among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days." You see what God had promised through the prophet that, that from this town one is coming, an eternal one, one who is coming from the ancient of days who will rule my people. And what we see here in Luke is we see all the power is in Caesar Augustus' hand. That, that he is, in fact, according to verse 1, making all the world be registered. One word from the Caesar. And the whole world is set in motion. Millions of people's lives are changed. And totally caught up in that are inconsequential, no-name Mary and Joseph just being moved along by the tidal wave of his power and his might, simply obeying him. And it appears to everyone who lives in that day that Caesar Augustus rules the world, but I tell you, he is simply the errand boy for our omnipotent God. He is a pawn in the hand of the Almighty. I don't care what power he holds. It is nothing. You see, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Mary's in Nazareth. And so God is going to move. God is going to use the greed in Augustus' heart to fulfill his word. It would not be the only time that God would work in the heart of a king. He would do so in King Cyrus, according to Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to build him a house in Jerusalem. He would do so in King Darius' life. For Ezra 6 tells us the Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. He would do so in King Artaxerxes' life. Ezra 7 explains, Blessed be the Lord who put into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. You see, God orders the heavens and the earth, and he rules in the minds and the hearts of rulers throughout this realm. The proverb writer explained, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And so consider all the massive political forces in our realm, all the power that is thrown about in multinational corporations and governments, all the might of militaries, all the power and wealth, without them even knowing it, is in the hand of God. Not for their benefit, but for the glory of God and the expansion of His kingdom. God wields the world to bring about His purposes. Friends, I think this ought to give you hope and hardship. I think this ought to be incredible hope in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, in times of uncertainty, and even in times of suffering and persecution. Maybe you come here today and you're in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of mire and trouble and hardship, and you say, okay, Stephen, if God is so powerful, why is my life such a mess? Why is there so much pain in my life? Why can't I pay my bills? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why my children not talk to me? Why, why have a loved one died? If God is sovereign, why is life not easier? Of course, we could ask the same question about Mary, can't we? Well, why make Mary walk 80 miles? Why is stable? Why alone? Why is her life not easier? It doesn't get any easier after this. 
It's because what God wants in your life is not ease. That's not His ambition for you. An easy life for you is not at the top of God's priority. He wants your godliness. He wants your Christ-likeness. He wants your worship of Him. He wants you to find your delight in Him. And He will wield the world to purify for Himself a bride. And your role in the midst of that trouble is to fight that good fight of faith. That though my life is difficult and hard, it does not mean that God is not in control. He will keep His promises to me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Nothing will separate me from His love. And He will help me meet any challenge that He brings my way. Please do not think your hardship means God is weak. He is ruling all the kings and presidents and prime ministers of this day according to His secret decrees in order to conform you and I and His people to Christ's likeness to build the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so we not only can have hope in hardship, we can have hope in missions. We can take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Even when we face opposition, political, social, economic, tribal, suffering, we know that God rules and he will build his kingdom. The gates of hell will not stop him. He will take it to the uttermost parts of this earth. And we can go. We can go like our brother Jeff Hemby has gone to proclaim the gospel. Or Josh Smith has gone to Ecuador to proclaim the gospel. Or Cheryl Witt has gone to Charlotte. Or Michelle Milburn has gone to Los Angeles. We can go. We can go to proclaim the gospel knowing our God is sovereign. We can pray for them who go. We can, we can give. We can send. We can sacrifice knowing that our God is sovereign and in control and He will build the kingdom of God because of His great power. You see, it's a sovereign birth. God is in control throughout this birth. But you also know that even though it's a sovereign, perhaps somewhat in contrast, even though it's powerful, it's humble. It's a humble birth. Can you see that? Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You note a couple things there, especially in verse 7. that She swaddled this baby. She took long strips of clothes and wrapped him up and tied him tight like many of you, you mamas did when you had a baby. My, my wife happens to be the queen of swaddling. I don't, uh, she, we, the nurse would come in and they would swaddle the baby and she would wait for that door to close and she would say, give me that baby and she would re-swaddle the baby and the baby's head starts turning red and you know, I can see the blood beating in the forehead. I think, are you sure? Hey, the baby's okay. And she, said, she would say, don't touch my baby. Right? I mean, that's what babies want. They want to be swaddled. They want to be tight. So why tell us that Jesus was swaddled? Why give us this mundane, just everyday fact? Well, be, precisely because... He's just like any other boy. He was swaddled and nursed and burped and laid to rest. Not in a crib, you know, but according to Luke, in a manger. We think most likely, though the Bible does not tell us, that she gave birth in a stable. We do know there was no room in the inn and there was a manger nearby. So I think we're probably safe to conclude that, that they did the best they could and they, they found a, a stable. I was going over this story with my children last night in our family worship. We talked uh, briefly about how, how the city would have been overrun and, and been crowded with pilgrims coming in to be registered and they couldn't find a place to stay. And so they had to find this is the only thing they could get, a, a stable. And contrary to, to Hallmark, um, Justin Martyr, the second century church father, says the stables of this day were, were shallow caves. They weren't wooden structures, most likely. 
and that he argued that Jesus was, was uh, probably born in a shallow cave which was used to house animals, wherever it was, whether it was a wooden structure or, or a cave. Um, I think we probably need to erase from our minds the romance that we often attribute to this and our, our beautiful little nativity scenes and everybody's happy and, and smiling and everything's going easy. I think this event was filled with fear. I think it was filled with, with pain. I don't know if the, when the contractions happened, maybe on the way into Bethlehem. Maybe she didn't tell Joseph right away, but she knew he had a lot of responsibility to find a place to, to stay. Maybe she told him, I know this is bad timing, but I'm, I think the baby's coming. Maybe there were tears rolling down her cheek. Maybe there's a hectic search. There's got to be a place for us to stay, and all they could come up with is a filthy stable, which would be bad enough to sleep in, but, but to give birth in would have been scandalous. It would been incredibly challenging. And as a man, I just think about what Joseph must have been going through. So he watches his beloved in such great pain and and, and then has to deal with the people's indifference and even the, the humiliation, the provider of the home and not being able to give his wife anything for her first child other than the, this this filth, this stinky stable and then the fear that he must have had, right? Well, us men, we're, we're, we're evolved. We go to the classes. We know all about giving birth. But Joseph didn't go to the classes, right? He didn't know anything about this. And, and all he saw was his wife in great pain and labor. And I don't know. Do you remember your firstborn? Do you remember the fear? Uh, the, the anxiety that was, was in your heart? I remember when, when our first child was born, Anastasia Theodora. God's gift of resurrection. You could tell I was in seminary at the time I named her, don't you? It's an awesome name. Um, but I, I, I remember the, that tinge of fear in my heart, the anxiety and earnest prayers that were offered. And yet I had doctors nearby and nurses and pain medicine if we needed it and surgery if we needed it. Can you imagine what this must have been like? No comfort, no doctors, no nurses, no, no mother, no family, just a 13-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy in a stable trying to bring life into this world. They were just kids. In fact, one commentator explains, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman's cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of Davidstown. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. We don't know how her labor went. Perhaps Joseph cooled her head or held her hand or prayed for her, shooed away the animals. Perhaps he wondered... If God's in this, if the angel came and this is all what we're supposed to believe it is, why is it happening this way? We don't know. We don't know how long she labored. All we know is what Luke tells us in verse 7, simply that she gave birth to her firstborn son. As one has said, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country, fair stable, we missed a point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smells of birth mixed with a stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. The trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. Or as William Billings puts it, Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. 
God can move an empire-wide census, if he can move, in order to move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, why this way? Why such shame? Why such humility? I mean, couldn't he make sure there was a room for them in the end? Couldn't he have sent a reservation ahead? Yes, he could have. And, and he could have been born to a wealthy family. And he also could have turned the stone into bread. And he, and he could have called for 10,000 angels to help him in Gethsemane. And he certainly could have come off the cross and saved himself. But it is not what he could have done. It is what the Father willed that he would do that he did. And it was God's will that though Christ was rich, he would become poor for your sake. That God rules kingdoms and motel vacancies for your sake. For your sake, he who entered the world in the stench of a stable would remove your stench of sin through the death on the cross. It is for your sake that he who began his life wrapped in clothes and laid in a manger would end his life once again wrapped in linen clothes and laid in a tomb. It is for your sake there is no room in the inn so you and I might be able to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the pattern here. He's rejected at birth. He's rejected through life. And he's rejected at death. This is what God has given us. One who would take our rejection upon himself that we might be accepted by God. It has been foretold. The prophet Isaiah said he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was humble, shameful birth and a humble, shameful life and a humble, shameful death in order that you and I might be accepted by God. He was our substitute. The Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus told us, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life up as a ransom for many, that he would pay the price for all my sin and wickedness there on the cross so that I don't have to earn my way to heaven through my own righteousness. There'd be no hope for me if that were the case, but I might simply be accepted by God because of my my faith and love in Christ. Do you love him? Do you trust this one who has come into this world to save you? Have you bowed your knee to him? Have you given him your heart? When you do, God will save you from that moment on. He will invite you into a relationship with him and he shall forgive your sins and you shall be his forever. This is what Christ has come to do. His, our humble birth. In fact, I think it's beautifully captured in the poem entitled The Borrower. Owner of the whole creation, fashioned worlds with but a word, yet he borrows now a manger for his entrance into the world. For a little while he borrows, then returns it back again. Rides above the earth as sovereign on the wings of tempest wind, yet he borrows now a donkey to reveal himself as king. For a little while he borrows, then returns it back again. 
ever-living one, eternal, sinless, holy, pure as light, that he borrows now a cross to die as a lamb in darkness night. For a little while he borrows, then returns it back again. Cries in sorrow, interceding, stripped of clothing, sold, betrayed, dead. He borrows now a tomb in which his broken body lays. For a little while he borrows, then returns it back again. Taking on our flesh and nature, Son of God and Son of Man, mighty Jesus, Lord of Heaven, second Adam, great I am. Still a man, yes, man forever, takes our form eternally, rids our souls of sin and fits us evermore with him to be. And of all the things he borrowed, he returned them one by one, all except my sins. Great Savior, these are gone. My soul is one. Thus for endless days in heaven I shall gaze upon thy face. Every word of praise I uttered has been purchased by thy grace. For from thee I borrow freely every breath and beat of heart. Take my life, my soul, O Jesus. Take my all, my King, thou art. You are our King, Jesus. You are our Lord who has come to redeem us, to save us, to purchase us back from our rebellion and our bondage to sin. And so you would come in this world and take our form that you might be our substitute and yet remain eternally the uncreated God that you might pay the eternal weight of sin. We thank you that you have come. We thank you that you have bought us, that we are not our own, but we belong to you. We thank you that our eternity is secure forever. Help us now as we rejoice in these truths and what Jesus has done for us, that we might live for his fame, and that we might find our delight in pursuing him and obeying him and following him and bringing him glory and honor and majesty. Help your people here, Hamilton Baptist Church, to be faithful, Father, in all that we do and say and think and will, that you may be honored and glorified. And we pray for our friend here this morning that does not know you as their God. They may know facts about you, Father. They may know everything there is that, that we know about you, and yet they do not know you as their Father, for they have not surrendered their life to Jesus. They know the gospel backwards and forwards. And yet there is no submission, no love, no repentance in their heart. We ask in your great kindness to them that you would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they might know the love of King Jesus, that they might willingly and joyfully submit their lives to him from this day and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.